Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Well, I invite you at this time to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Throughout the Advent series, we have been looking at where our true hope lies, and today, Christmas Day, we celebrate uh, this arrival of hope, this first arrival as it came. Um, The story that we're going to be looking at is one that is quite familiar. I've drawn some uh, little figures here of uh, Mary and uh, Joseph, and and they're, they're on this trip. Uh, they're, they're making their way down to Bethlehem. And throughout the Christmas season, we hear lots of different variations of what the story might have looked like in pageants. It's, it's dressed up in all sorts of ways. But I invite you to pay attention uh, to what is in the passage here. And we're going to take a bit of a deeper look at some of the, the history um, behind this. So Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Before reading, let's come before God in prayer. Mighty God, uh, the shepherds were full of your praises, saying that all that they had heard and seen was exactly as they had been told. Move among us now with your Holy Spirit, that we too might hear and experience the wonder and joy of the living word as we seek to welcome the written word into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea in Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, I'll have Mary and Joseph uh, run off for the moment here, Um, because I'll start with something a little bit different. Uh, There is a movie called Love Actually, Uh, that begins in the opening scenes. It cuts to the scene of a a mother and a daughter in the kitchen, and the dialogue goes like this. So what's the big news? Well, we've been given our roles for the nativity play, and I'm the lobster. The lobster? Yeah. In the nativity play? Yeah, first lobster. There was more than one lobster present at the birth of Jesus? And she responds, duh. Um, that story, that, that works its way into that film uh, because the nativity story is famous for integrating aspects of um, 
the story that aren't actually there in the text. Maybe they just wanted to have more kids included in the place. So they brought in some lobsters or sheep or, or whatever it was. Um, but when we take a look at what is in our passage here, we'll find uh, that the story might have a few differences in the focus. And today I want to look at this passage and maybe um, we'll find something here uh, that is a little bit different, um, but can be held alongside these other stories. Uh, this is a version of the story that was told to me while I was living in um, Israel and studying the culture and the land out there. The story begins in a very familiar place. It's with this decree that's made by Caesar Augustus, and he, way off in Rome, is telling these people out in Israel that they have to do something. And for Joseph and Mary, this means going from Nazareth um, up north, uh, traveling south to Bethlehem. Uh, this journey would have been um, one that's kind of nearer to sea level and working their way up. And the distance would have been 145 kilometers. Uh, so this is a fairly long journey. It would have taken them about five days, or it would have taken um, a person in that time about five days. We assume it took a little bit longer for them uh, because Mary had, uh, was carrying something extra there. But um, in the stories, we often kind of see, or at least in the nativity plays, that there's a sense of rush. They really needed to get there before the baby was born. Um, but that isn't necessarily in our passage. Uh, one of the reasons why we kind of assume they're in this hurry is because of this idea of them being in this inn. Uh, the word for inn, uh, I have it in the Greek here, and then the uh, English kind of how phonetically you would speak it is kataluma. You can try to say kataluma. Anybody? Kataluma. Um, kataluma can be defined as either an inn or it could just be the guest room of your house. Uh, so there is a choice in translating that. And it makes a difference um, in our passage, I think, in which word we choose to use there. Because this is right in here at the end of our passage, uh, they placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the Cataluma, in the inn, as we read this morning. Now, let's just look at uh, just a couple of the ramifications of choosing the word in here. See if this version of the story sounds familiar to you. Uh, first of all, Mary and Joseph show up at the Best Western. They, they're, they're showing up at an inn here, and they are in a hurry because Mary is very pregnant. Notice just a little difference there, but she's very pregnant. Like it's, she's three days overdue. The baby could come at any time. And the manager shows up, and he is just so grumpy. And he takes one look at them and points at the no vacancy sign and says, sorry, we're full. Book ahead next time. Uh, but luckily, they spot a barn just down the road, and they sneak into it, and apparently it's some sort of petting zoo, uh, because this one has cows and sheep and donkeys. The whole gang is there. Uh, but when we look at the passage, there's no innkeeper. Uh, there aren't any animals in there. 
And uh, depending on how we read it, uh, there's no in. Uh, just this word, the, the cataluma, this guest room that they would be staying in. Now, I mentioned that this could be translated in these two different ways. We'll get rid of the words here. Um, that we have this option of the guest room, this room that would be at, at the top there, or the inn. And I, I think this idea of the inn has a couple of things working against it. For one, in, in the Gospel of Luke, later on, the same word is used, uh, but it's used to describe the upper room. It comes in Luke chapter 22 when they're having the Last Supper. And they have the Last Supper in this cataluma. They have it in uh, this space in Jerusalem, um, in this upper room, and that's how it's translated. But there are other reasons as well. Uh, for one, uh, one thing knocking against the uh, in version is where Bethlehem is located. Uh, Bethlehem is not located on a main or central highway where you would normally have these types of inns in the biblical times. Uh, they're just kind of off to the side. So you wouldn't really expect to find something like that there. Another reason why is the population there. Uh, Bethlehem is expected to have about 300 to 1,000 people, uh, which by today's standards, you don't really expect to have a large inn there, especially if it's not on a main route. And, and the third aspect has to do with the architecture of houses at that time. Um, I've tried to redraw this. Um, we'll get rid of Mary and Joseph for a moment here and zoom in if we can. Oh, they disappeared. Oh, let's see if I can do that again. Why? There it is. Um, the architecture of houses at that time, you would have, oh, we're, we're pretending we're looking into the house there, so we have that guest room out at top, and then on the side here, you have uh, the family room right here, and then the entrance, and the entrance is a space where you could have your little animal, okay, that, oh, this is why I don't draw these live, uh, where you would have the animals if the, the weather was cold or if it was particularly windy or whatnot, and in that space, this is kind of a multi-purpose space, that whole bottom floor would be one kind of main room, and there would be kind of a half dividing wall here where you might find uh, a manger or feeding troughs of sorts that would be connected into that main family living space. So, when we look at that this way, when there is no room for them in the guest room, there's no room for them up here, where do they go? Uh, the solution is they stay in the main family area where the manger would be available for the baby. Uh, so there's kind of three main reasons why this whole idea of guest room making sense. It's not on the major travel route. Bethlehem is small, the architecture. Uh, but I think the biggest convincing element of the guest room is this theme of hospitality. Uh, if you go to the Middle East today, you'll find that the people are very hospitable uh, because this is embedded into their culture. This is a central need for survival. If you were to travel around, especially back then, and there wasn't much water around, you would need um, the people in wherever village you were going to to be able to give you water, to give you lodging where you were staying. 
this was expected for strangers, let alone for family members in that time. So it's, it's almost unthinkable that Joseph, who is in the line of David, he's connected to people in Bethlehem, that he wouldn't be invited into a home of sorts. This, this is just part of who they are. And this builds up to what I find to be a fairly persuasive argument that, that Cataluma ought to be translated as guest room. And if we look at the NIV, uh, the, the versions that we have here um, are a little bit older, so it still says in, um, but they changed it in 2011, the more recent ones that will read that there was no room in the guest room. Now, for some people, this, this telling of the story might have some uh, internal whiplash it might, it might change it a little bit too dramatically. After all, we have, uh, rather than it being a story of inhospitable people and the lowest of low of births, we actually have a story of hospitality at its core. Um, and we might ask ourselves, even at this point, what are the implications here? Well, we might be surprised to find a lesson of taking a traveling family and warmly accepting them into your home, even though the guest room is already taken by the family members or whoever has already traveled in. Uh, once we get over the initial shock, perhaps, of um, what is here, there's a deeper challenge within. Do we know this type of hospitality in the season of Christmas? Do we, do we know what it's like to invite others in perhaps strangers, uh, those who are not family into our homes? What better way to celebrate the mood of this Christmas story? It, it can be an incredibly powerful thing to this day uh, to be able to invite people into your home. Uh, this is something that is especially true in the midst of our own culture. Uh, take the fact, this is a fact that I came across, or a stat that I came across more recently, that over 50% of adults in our culture today are single. And that's, that's a much larger number than we would find 20 years ago, or 40 years, or 50 years ago, for sure. And in the midst of this, these changes, the church ought to be challenged in, in how we view what it means to belong, what it means to do our celebrations are our celebrations oriented only towards family, or is this a space for all people? How do we organize our own kind of home celebrations, making sure that all are welcome? Are our households a place of belonging for people that we're related to and for people that we're not? And Yes, I know I'm saying this in the midst of a pandemic, so I'm not saying to, if you have a small apartment just to invite like 50 people over and get all cozy, uh, but it's not like in our passage here that the situation was normal. This was in the middle of a census taking. It was busier. It might have felt hostile. The possibilities of loneliness were higher as people were out of their homes and traveling. So perhaps we do have a bit of a point of connection here, that while there are people in a season of displacement, where they have been isolated from their regular communities, could there also be an opportunity to welcome people in? 
Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, there's this line, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people may have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Um, looking at that line in relation to the story we've just seen uh, adds a new dimension to it. As this unnamed home, these unnamed um, owners here, may have thought they were given hospitality to a couple expecting their first child, but in the process, they showed hospitality to God himself. Moving on here, uh, when we look at this passage from this lens, there, there isn't that same indication of a rush that's happening. All we find in our passage is, when the time came, uh, perhaps we have the ideas of, of a rush being here with the idea that, that there was no room in the inn. It just happened as soon as they got there. They didn't have time to get to the Ramada or the Super 8 or the Quality Inn. Um, and in our retelling today, we're left with this, all we're left with is this miraculous moment put so plainly. When the time came, she gave birth. They wrapped him in a cloth and swaddling was customary back then as well. And we have Jesus being born in the family room and placed in a manger. And this is what we have come to celebrate today. More than 2,000 years ago, we remember this event because it's the beginning of the healing of all of creation. God coming to be with us is not some uh, theoretical or, or some spiritual thing that, that only the people that have studied the philosophy and everything can understand. It is God showing up in a way that is so ordinary that almost nobody notices. God coming into the home and engaging with us here on creation's terms. An event so massive because it impacts the whole of creation, every culture from now on, and this should stand out to us then in how God works. God, God works not by showing up in the palace, not by crushing everyone with his rule. God shows up, and again, it's so ordinary that almost nobody notices. And this is remarkable because becoming human is a mystery. God becoming human is a mystery so deep that it has filled volume after volume of books over the years. And these reflections are all about God's love coming to us. As we, then, are brought into this story, Ko uh, was talking about being invited into this big story of God's salvation. As we are invited into this story, we are reminded that it is us, it is not us, um, finding our rescue in our way out of this it is not from anything that we did. It is God coming in and bringing renewal from within. And God invites us to participate in this. We can join in on this amazing renewal of all of creation based on what God has done. God, who started this, continues it through his people. So we, we might still have the question, though, of why does it look so different 
in the stories and some of the pageants. Uh, it may be less uh, exciting, less dramatic. We have the stories, we, we like to have our stories of the rushing in, the emotions and the drama. We imagine the story almost like a soap opera, the last-minute travel arrangements, the angry hotel manager, the panicked soon-to-be parents. It, it makes the story more exciting to add in some of those details. And perhaps what we looked at today uh, makes the Christmas story seem a little ordinary, at least to our eyes. But that's because Luke isn't interested in the same things that we might be interested. He doesn't dress up the story in drama and excitement because what is extraordinary here isn't the drama surrounding Jesus' birth, but it is the very fact that Jesus is born. We reread this passage with the reminder that Jesus comes into the world and is surrounded by a family, by a culture, in a certain time, in a certain place. He arrives in the world in this particular little town in Bethlehem, and there's something remarkable in this. Jesus is embedding himself into a particular place, this particular people. God enters into the culture and it begins to transform it from that point. And we might find the point of reflection that it is from the place of family, from our own households, our own culture that we are in, that is from these spaces that we are called to bring the presence of Christ. Often we think ministry is something that's caught up in the extraordinary things. We like to read stories about Jesus and we'll maybe skip to the miracles that he performed as if those were the real important bits. But here, we are called to stop and reflect on the ordinariness that the kingdom sometimes shows up with. God as divine, as the one who has existed for eternity, as the one who made all creation comes in and is known in such a plain way that if we don't get it, we'll want to dress the story up with some other details. In a book called uh, The Theology of the Ordinary, Julie Canlis reflects on Jesus' birth and says, have you ever been struck by the domesticity of the incarnation? Um, does it strike you as just domestic, as, as too ordinary, too plain? Faced with a whole world going to hell in a handbasket, God's rescue mission is to be born? How ordinary is that? It's here in the confines of a little family, unnoticed by the whole world, new creation has begun Uh, whatever it means to be spiritual or religious in our broader culture, we have here an affirmation that on Christmas Day that our bodies matter, our culture matters, what we do in the day-to-day -day matters. Uh, this story here may have us reflecting on the ordinary ways that God works through us. God working through us in our humanity. And this is not to say that, that what God calls us to isn't demanding, only that it might not be as dazzling and as extraordinary as we sometimes might imagine. 
God often works in and through us in ways that seem ordinary, but still bring the radical renewal of God's kingdom. We are able to do this through the spirit that God gives. The radical call to follow God in a fallen world often will take on these ordinary ways. It can happen in the everydayness of our lives. So the, the nudge that I'll give to you for today is to take stock of where you are, where God has placed you, and to take time to listen to what God may be speaking to you. Maybe as you take time to listen, you'll have the simple reminder that God loves you, that God became human for you, not from anything that you've done, but in your very existence. Maybe, too, when you take time to listen to how God may be calling you, you might find that God's calling you in the using of your hands, uh, the, the helping those who have been impacted by the flooding, ripping out drywall and nails. Maybe it's baking meals for those in need. Or maybe it is in offering hospitality. It can be in recognizing the gift of a home and a space where you can welcome people in and let them know that they are not forgotten, but they belong. Perhaps you could start a tradition by inviting others in in the midst of the holidays, thinking of those who are far from home or do not have a family nearby, who do not have children or, or grandchildren. Or if you are on your own, it could mean welcoming in a family or going someplace new. In doing so, we are showing, I think, a fuller understanding of what it means to be invited into the story. Where we see the arena that God works in involves our homes, our spaces, the things that we do in the day-to-day, -day, and the people that we're called to share them with. So as we go from here, let us not just remember that God came to be with us, but that this event of his birth changes how we live in the world today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, when we get offended by how ordinary your coming to the world was, May that give us a shake in what our expectations are for you showing up today. Give us imaginations that can see how radically transformative our everyday engagement with the world is, bringing renewal and hospitality and care for our neighbors. Through your spirit working in us, equip us to live in such a way that we become to look more and more like you speaking up for those who are down and out, showing love for those in need, and serving others. Help us to see what it means to be imitators of you, starting in our households, our culture, the places where you have placed us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.